HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheese that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly journey through culinary history. And you know, Chinese food is one of the most popular foods, at least restaurant foods, in America, and has been for quite some time. In fact, if I say Chinese, probably one of the first thoughts that come to your head is food. (laughs) Uh, And yet there have been a lot of... Uh, trials and tribulations with, as any immigrant group, but particularly with the Chinese immigrants, um, starting with the very first time that they came to America. And a lot of this then had to do with the food, how it was perceived, and how it evolved as well. And here to talk with us about that is Anne Mendelssohn with her new book, Chow Chop Suey. Anne is a culinary historian and a freelance writer. She wrote for Gourmet for a long time. And she has um, worked as an editor and collaborator on several cookbooks and wrote the book on milk, on the production and consumption of milk, and a wonderful book on the the back story of The Joy of Cooking called Stand Facing the Stove. And it is with great pleasure that I welcome Anne and a friend, I must say, here today. Welcome, Anne. Delighted to be here. All right. Let's start with the title of the book, The Chow Chop Suey, Food in and the Chinese-American Journey. I mean, that's saying a whole lot right there. Um, but let's start with just the beginning of the title, Chow Chop Suey. What is that? 
Well, I have to um, I have to say at the outset that a lot of my book is about the problems of language. Um, Chinese people and English-speaking people had innumerable impasses of understanding, and this is one of them. Um, many of you know the phrase chop suey, but I don't think everybody understands that it originated um, as a more complicated phrase, um, and there was such difficulty, English speakers and Chinese speakers, um, making sense of each of what the other was saying, that it entered our language only in a garbled way. Uh, chop suey, um, chop suey in Cantonese uh, means odds and ends or um, jumbled fragments. And chow um, stands for the stir-fry method. Uh, cha chop suey means stir-fried odds and ends. Mm-hmm. Um, but when people, white people, started going to Chinese restaurants uh, without the foggiest idea of what they were eating because nobody could explain it in English and they couldn't read Chinese menus, um, they latched onto a confused idea that there was this dish called chop suey uh, that came in different Forms You could have chicken chop suey or shrimp chop suey. Uh, what they didn't know was that there was a first word that summed up the whole um, stir-fry experience. Um, chow chop suey. Um, stir-fried odds and ends. <laughs> now, when Chinese people... Um, put together menus, um, and when some of them put together English-language cookbooks, they wrote not um, chicken chop suey or um, shrimp chop suey, but chow shrimp, chow chicken, stir-fried. And this escaped the understanding of English speakers, absolutely. Uh, They latched onto the idea There was this dish called chop suey, uh, which there never really was, um, but Chinese being very happy to accommodate patrons, um, they went along with the mistake, and the mistake has never been entirely cleared up. (laughs) (laughs) And then, in fact, the word chow, look what what happened to that, right? Uh I mean, that has become synonymous with food. Yes. Or, you know, hey, let's chow. It's time to chow. Mm-hmm. You know, Here is a, there's a whole other English, English speaker's invention. Well, indeed, um, and I'm glad that you mentioned that so much of your book is about the, the language or the difficulties of language because um, that was evident in, in reading through and reading through some of the, um, the reviews and, um, and just background of of Chinese language and, and the difficulties for China, for the Chinese in Chinese language. How many, I think one of the reasons many came over here were illiterate, so to speak. I mean, not reading in general terms all, all languages, but just a small, uh, I mean, of their language, a small faction of, of the Chinese symbols. Um, what, well, just bring, sort of bring us up to date with, um, uh, the history of, of Chinese immigration to the U.S. and and some of the difficulties that um, 
occurred? Well, some listeners may know that there um, were terrible wars and other disasters in South China in the 19th century. Uh, There were famines, there were floods, uh, there were massacres, um, and Guangdong province uh, in southern China was a good place to get out of um, if you could. Um, The opium wars that were conducted by Great Britain um, during the 1930s and 40s uh, made things worse. And one of the few good things about the Opium Wars was that um, they established Hong Kong as a British possession, um, taking over a tremendous amount of commerce um, between South China and everywhere else in the world, including a new state called California in the U.S. So a um, pipeline of people uh, materialized, uh, leaving from Hong Kong and going uh, to Gold Rush, California, where the Chinese were um, at first welcomed very happily because they were excellent organizers. Among other things, they organized supplies of Chinese food to be sent uh, from Hong Kong uh, to San Francisco. And uh, various restaurants started up in San Francisco that were very popular with um, newcomers, both Chinese and otherwise. Uh, people from all over the world um, and people from all over the eastern United States. The crunch came a few years later when people started, people by people, I mean members of the new American labor movement, started to notice that Chinese would work endless hours uh, at all kinds of difficult jobs for much less pay than white people. Uh, we, uh, mm, if this sounds gee. familiar, <laughs> right. does this sound familiar? Yeah, funny that you should bring it up at this <laughs> point in time. Uh-huh. And in a very few years, um, I mean, the honeymoon was maybe from 1849 uh, for two or three years. Then, out of nowhere, you started seeing these these mutterings, these complaints about the horrible, barbaric, nasty Chinese, this race of little verminous people taking honest white men's jobs. And this escalated into the worst persecution that's ever been visited on any race in this country, except for African Americans and Native Americans. Um, By the 1870s and 80s, um, there were lynchings going on in the far west, wherever there were Chinese um, trying to compete for jobs. And there were uh, there was arson um, there was there were calls for Congress to do something about these horrible nasty uh, interlopers and Congress obliged um, by passing the Chinese Exclusion Act in eighteen eighty two This is the only piece of legislation um, ever enacted by Congress 
to keep out immigrants from one country, one foreign country. Again, the corollaries are are just too stark. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yes. So, yes. and this was so. This really. Um, they could come in and work, but in no way could they apply for citizenship or become resident, legal residents, right? You could become a legal resident under some conditions. Uh, the law was chiefly aimed at laborers, manual laborers. Uh, you couldn't compete for manual labor jobs with the honest American white working man. Hmm. Um, if you were found doing so, you stood to be deported um, after a year's hard labor. Um, the law kept being renewed, the Chinese Exclusion Act, um, at something like 10-year intervals. And um, every time it seemed to make life harder for the Chinese. But if you were not a laborer, if you were, if you um, qualified for businessman or merchant status, um, then you could become a legal resident. You could not apply for citizenship, because since uh, George Washington's first term, uh, applying for citizenship was limited to free white men. Hmm. So all of this that you prefaced, and actually not prefaced so much as explained, um, kind of busts the myth of the Chinese coming over to work on the railroads or the Chinese coming for the gold rush and creating the slop, the chop suey for all the other workers, right? This is something that I think is, if anything else you want to drive home, you want people to understand this, right? No, the Chinese cooked for themselves um, very skillfully, uh, with great expertise, and they had the ingredients um, to to work with because they were being exported from Hong Hong Kong. Kong. Um, I mean, maybe if you were in the very farthest boondocks, you might have trouble um, getting stuff, Um, but the Chinese brought their own cooking vessels. Um, They were... They were improvisers. They were just great at figuring out how to meet adversity and how to invent what needed to be invented under difficult circumstances. Well, you um, talk a lot about a particular phrase that's used in the Chinese language Mm -hmm. um, that that describes that. Can you tell us about that? Um, Xiang Banfa, which I am wildly mispronouncing, (laughs) I apologize to anybody who speaks Mandarin. Um, It means... Chao Banfa. Xiang. Xiang, okay. Xiang Banfa. It means to come up with a solution for a difficulty. And these people from Guangdong province... Uh, were masters of the art of doing whatever had to be done. If you had to learn something, you learned it. If you had to do something, you did it somehow or ever or other. It was um, a powerful uh, survival instinct that stood them in very good stead. Yeah, indeed. As I was reading some of your um, the the stories that that illustrated uh, the phrase I was thinking about it. I said well, how, what would I think of that I would say it's akin to deal with it 
You know, yeah. just deal mm-hmm. with it, right? <laughs> Take I, care of it, right? And as you say, this this did put them in good stead for being in this country where communication was not an easy thing. Communication was terribly difficult. Well, aside from the the language, I mean, there are there were particular culinary language barriers as well. But what other features of the Chinese cuisine made it so difficult for Americans that they that they preferred eating a dumbed-down version, or what's all they knew, really, was a dumbed-down version. It was impossible to explain the concepts, the basic culinary, culinary concepts, from the one language to the other. For example, stir-frying, chow, that uh, was uh, the first word in this phrase, chow, chop suey. Um, in the book, I say, how would you explain baking a cake to somebody who'd never seen an oven uh, or cake pans um, or flour? Um, how would you get the, the concept across? Well, stir-frying cannot be explained unless you have a wok. And you know unless what you a have, wok is, You have right? to know what a wok is. Right. Other, other pans will not produce the same result. Uh, you have to have it over a fire that flares up tremendously hot very quickly uh, so that you can cook in just a, a matter of a few minutes. Um, to do that, you need to cut things into the right-sized um, pieces. Um, there are names, there's a whole vocabulary for how to cut ingredients uh, before you get anywhere near the stove or the wok. Um, Chinese people know this from infancy. And by the way, I I should add that these were Chinese men who were these very skilled cooks. They didn't bring women. Uh, A comparative handful of Chinese women um, got here as prostitutes or maybe just a few under better circumstances. But in southern Guangdong province, the the family idea was for the wife to marry into the husband's family, uh, come to live in his family home, in the home village, um, and stay there in seclusion. Uh, women did not participate in daily um, interchanges with male society, and they did not come to this country except in tiny numbers. Uh, The truth is that Chinese men have always been extremely skillful cooks. Mm. They they were not deprived um, of cooking skills uh, because their women were not with them. Uh, Quite the reverse. Yeah, but even if the women were there, they would probably be, the men would be doing the cooking. Um, Interesting, and this is, and Brings up another point I wanted to I wanted you to talk about, and that that is that um, there is this uh, misconception that the Chinese laborers came and they were okay, so they were the men and they were cooking and and trying to adapt to the Western palate, um, and yet this is this didn't happen on the spot when they were coming to America and and <clears throat> doing the manual labor as you described that you just described, Hong Kong was now a British territory. Mm-hmm. There were all the uh, diplomats living there employing 
men chefs, right? So. Yes, yes. And um, also, even before uh, Hong Kong became a British territory, um, when Westerners first started showing up in southern China, uh, 17th, 18th century. Trading, um, most for most Trading, part, right? yeah. um, when uh, tea and uh, porcelain and silk were being exported for the first time uh, to Europe. Um, well, the, um, the Westerners were not allowed to move around freely. Mm. <clears throat> freely, pardon my sore throat. That's right. um, they were pretty much um, confined to certain areas of uh, Guangzhou City. And they uh, brought some of their own cooks with them. Uh, but the Cantonese um, also um, seized the opportunity um, to do cooking uh, for Englishmen and other Westerners. Um, and they promptly learned how to reproduce English food as well as English cooks. Mm-hmm. Um, Westerners were just amazed at this, this skill, this quickness in grasping anything that you had to learn. And they did it. That, that phrase again, mm-hmm. uh, the, then the, but the chop suey and the intri- intrigue with this, these dishes that would be prepared and put in front of Westerners took off. Um, with such a popularity that suddenly, well, after Chinatowns were formed in Mm -hmm. in many of the cities, that they took off like wildfire. And we're going to talk about those and then the eventual evolution of Chinese food when we come back after a brief break. So stay tuned. Today's program is brought to you by the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese, period. Why? Lush grasslands, glacial water supply, fourth-generation cheesemakers, combining old-world tradition with the new ideas and highest standards. The very best milk. What do you think of when you think of Wisconsin cheese? For me, I think cheese curds, delicious fresh cheese curds, or deep fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally any way, any time, any place. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese Company, the operation behind the Pleasant Ridge Reserve cheese that's literally America's most awarded cheese. I think of the deliciously stinky Limburger and its long-storied history. I think about Raleigh's Dumbarton Blue, a perfect blend of English-style cheddar and notes of blue. I think of Emmy Roth's Grand Cru Chirchois, which was named 2016's World Champion at the World Championship Cheese Contest. Wisconsin is like the world champion of cheese, and once you start reading the list of cheeses made in Wisconsin on their website, you can see why. The Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board is a nonprofit organization funded entirely by Wisconsin's dairy farm families. Read more at eatwisconsincheese.com. And as soon as you're done listening to this podcast, eat Wisconsin cheese. It's a no-brainer. Well, we are laughing here in the studio. Or eat chop suey. <laughs> Cheese curds or chop suey. No, we want you to, to patronize our, our uh, sponsors for sure. But we, I'm talking with Ann Mendelson about um, the Chinese um, America, the, the journey of, of food for the Chinese in America. And um, 
uh, we were talking about the popularity of, of Chinese food, and, or in chop suey joints in particular. But prior to that, or around the same, there was the growth of Chinatowns, of, of enclaves of Chinese people. Could you talk about that a little? Yes. The first Chinatown in the U.S. was in San Francisco. Um, first it was Little China, and then it grew, and uh, after a few years it was called Chinatown. And Chinese people, as the persecution grew, as California and the rest of the um, the Western states became more dangerous uh, for them to um, be in without uh, endangering life and limb, uh, they started moving east, uh, hoping for a less um, homicidal reception. Uh, they they got to the Midwest. They got to the East Coast, and. They settled um, in little enclaves where they could where they could um, avoid the attention of the immigration authorities uh, by setting themselves up as businessmen, uh, people conducting little businesses, not the manual laborers um, who were eligible to be, who were not just eligible, they were sure to be deported if they were caught uh, by the immigration folks. So the first stratagem they hit upon um, was to found small laundries. And as the laundry business changed and uh, more um, steam-powered machinery started um, displacing the the hand skills, uh, they turned to restaurants. People started founding small restaurants, um, which qualified them as businessmen or merchants who were safe from being deported. They also... um, very quickly, we've gotten now to about the 1890s, they realized from their prior experience um, noticing what white Americans liked, what the state of American taste was, they realized uh, that they could appeal to the American palate with a mixture of Chinese elements Um, mostly the stir-fry method, and American-oriented, you should pardon the expression, um, American-geared seasonings. Uh, Lots of sugar, lots of soy sauce, uh, lots of thick, glossy, um, starch-thickened sauces. Uh, These corresponded to some developments in American taste, uh, the American palate that we, we see um, in other contexts, um, people started, for example, loving baked ham with a lot of sugar and maybe canned pineapple. Uh, people started loving Boston baked beans sweetened through the nines. And um, the Chinese restaurateurs, um, catering to an American clientele, um, they very adroitly um, invented a hybrid version of Chinese food that pushed all the right buttons for 
white Americans and um, black Americans, too, who very quickly um, came to to love the so-called chop suey cuisine. And just what comes into my head, you know, like the very overly sweet and sticky, sweet and sour sauces or the the lemon chicken that's, yes, fragrant with lemon, but mostly it's sticky with sugar. <laughs> and yeah, But this was, this was, these were such new flavor mm-hmm. treats for, for Americans and Westerners in, in general. Mostly Americans because of other Westerners in other countries. So I'm thinking Europe. Um, I think we're sampling, um, I hate to use that word authentic, but sampling, you know, um, um, maybe cuisine that wasn't quite as... Uh, as adapted, but I don't know. I think that there was not as much emigration from China to mm, Europe until considerably later. Mm. Um, a great deal came to the Americas, Canada, the U.S., uh, Mexico, and Latin America. There, there was a tremendous influx of Chinese from Guangdong province. Well, when and why do you think the interest in in Chinese food and cooking occurred that brought us, that that sort of had many of us leave those, I want to say, it's and it is, it's like Italo-American cuisine, it's Chinese-American cuisine. I think many immigrant groups have those cuisines that are, they are cuisine in themselves. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, who doesn't still love, you know, some of those old-style Chinese-American foods? But yet we we ventured forth to learn a little bit more about Chinese cooking. What, when and why? I think you have to look at World War Two. You have to look... Um, always when you talk about Chinese food in America, there is a geopolitical context. Mm. Uh, things that were going on in China, things that were going on in the rest of the world. Uh, so uh, comes Pearl Harbor, comes World War Two. And suddenly, China is our great ally. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek commanded um, the the Nationalist Army in China. And in Washington, D.C., representatives of Chiang's government started showing up. Uh, Diplomats, military attaches, VIPs. Uh, with their household retinues, including cooks. These guys were not Cantonese speakers. They didn't come from the the sort of peasant background of the the Chinese who first came to America um, uh, during and after the gold rush. This was a new crew of people. Uh, They spoke Mandarin. Um, More of them were from the north. They felt that they belonged to sort of a a higher echelon of Chinese society than these Cantonese uh, who had preceded them. Um, They let Americans know that Cantonese food was not really as elegant as the food of um, the northern regions that they came from. And many of these household chefs... Uh, they decamped to restaurant jobs after World War II. They founded their own restaurants, uh, starting in Washington, D.C. And uh, during the Cold War um, in New York City, um, which was the headquarters of the new United Nations, they 
were much resented by the Cantonese speakers who knew that they had not been welcomed as VIPs. They had been... Um, shunned, actually. Yeah, they had been shunned, or they had at least been looked down on, uh, chink, chink, Chinaman. And all of a sudden, here are these elegant people um, who have social confidences, the equals of... Um, the cream of American society. Um, some of the um, some of the VIPs' wives um, started founding cooking schools. Uh, by now, we're in about the 1950s and 60s, and there was a period when so-called Mandarin cuisine or Northern cuisine or uh, some new style Chinese cuisine. Um, formerly unknown to white Americans, became all the rage among foodies uh, with a big boost from restaurant reviewers. Uh, restaurant reviewing was then a pretty new profession. That's right. <laughs> it was, and, it, and Craig Claiborne, was, of course, was a champion of, of mm-hmm. so many of these international cuisines, and, and especially Chinese. Yes. Yeah. Um, so it So cookbooks, well, Cooking classes, as you mentioned, became popular, um, and and cookbooks uh, and some some well, there was one prior to that. There was an early cookbook. We have, we we skipped over. You said you brought us all the way to the sixties, but I was just you know loving the story of Pearl S. Book. I think <laughs> we we would be remiss if we did if you didn't share that story and and the fabulous book that was a result. Two fabulous books. <laughs> um, well, Pearl, the Good Earth being the first. Okay, we'll give, dispense with that. Okay, um, Pearl Buck, uh, whom most of us know as the author of um, The Good Earth and other novels, was married to a very important uh, New York publisher, and she and he together discovered they, they suddenly uh, fell upon a treasure. Uh, um, a linguist, Yuan Renchao, uh, wrote to inquire, um, well, they wrote to him uh, about a potential dictionary to do for their company. And he wrote back, well, no, but my wife has this cookbook. The cookbook became How to, Co- How to Cook and Eat in Chinese, which was published in 1945. And it was an incredible breakthrough in international understanding. It was the first Chinese cookbook in English that had been produced by people who took into account the difficulties of explaining Chinese culinary concepts in the English language. Which we talked about yeah. early in the show, right? And that, yeah. was, that was important. So the author, um, Boi Yang Chao, um, was married to one of the greatest linguists of the 20th century, Yuan Renchao. Um, their daughter, their oldest daughter, Rulan, was um, herself a very notable um, teacher of Chinese um, to English speakers. Um, well, between the three of them, um, Bu Wei wrote the cookbook, in Chinese. Uh, Roland translated it together with many arguments between mother and daughter um, into English. And then Yuan Renchao went through and 
fine-tuned things and um, made changes that he thought were more, mm, I don't like to use the word atmospheric, um, but conveyed the flavor of the Chinese language mm-hmm. better. So uh, this really was the first book that conveyed classic classic Chinese cooking. Well, right. it conveyed regional I mean, Chinese. Well, and to the to to mm-hmm. a Western audience. To a Western yes. o- to a Western audience. Right. Um, the Chows were not from Guangdong. They were from a region called Jiangnan, um, which is well. Um, I think the easiest way to say it, it's close to Shanghai mm-hmm. on on the Chinese East mm-hmm. Coast. And this is a great center of Chinese culinary art uh, from way back when. Quite a different school from uh, Cantonese cooking, although um, Cantonese cooking is much admired by all Chinese, um, including the Chows, and they they included some Cantonese dishes. They included some from Sichuan and Hunan, uh, some from Beijing, but mostly it was um, the sort of Shanghai um, bailiwick. Mm. Well, it's interesting because you, um, you know, why why Pearl S. Buck? Of course, many of us remember the fact that she spent a lot of her life in China, mm-hmm. um, but she grew up with missionary parents. What I wasn't aware of, though, that was that she was more comfortable in the Chinese language initially with her thoughts even in writing, than mm-hmm. prior to, you know, before English, before the English language. So I could see her excitement in in finding uh, a book like this and promoting it. Yes, um, the manuscript came in, um, and Pearl Buck, who had grown up as a little girl, um, speaking the local um, language of Jiangnan region, um, at least as readily as English, mm. Um, if not more, um, she always said that she thought in Chinese and mentally translated her own work hmm. into English. Um, she saw this manuscript, and she instantly, um, by the way, the company had previously turned down uh, several hmm. Chinese cookbooks. She had a very low opinion of English language Chinese cookbooks. She took one look and ran into the kitchen and started cooking. Well, I guess that's a good sign right there. But then, so then we do fast forward to, to as you said, a transitional period, which would have been the 60s mm-hmm. um, coming into that. And I don't, um, I don't know if many people listening remember or remember on their parents' shelves um, a series. Well, there are still some of them in circulation, the Time Life series. And Time Life did this, fab, I have to say, fabulous series because mm-hmm. a, a lot of people involved in that series were um, estimable uh, uh, oh. writers and, and and researchers in their in their of their own um, foods of the world and the series I don't know how long it was in the works before it, I think the first was published around 1966 or 68 mm, yes 67 and 68 yeah. yeah and and the Chinese one was wildly popular mm-hmm. but tell me about what tell me about some of the what you know really thrust things into the into the crazy market with um, with wanting to become more authentic in our attempts at, at Chinese cooking? Well, the cooking schools had had a, um, quite an influence by this time. Uh, there were two 
teachers who were sort of the the, the leading instructors, um, Grace Ziachu um, and Florence Lin. Florence Lin. Yeah. Yes, and they had um, I mean, students just flocked to their classes in droves. Um, the Chinese cooking rage took hold in the late 50s, early 60s, early 70s. And uh, they were two of the people who were asked to basically put together the food uh, for the Time Life Foods of the World volume Mm. in China. Um, There was another angle to the excellence of that book, which was that the photographic staffs of Time and Life uh, got in on the act. And the producers of the series were very conscientious about including photographic instruction, which was something new. It was too... I mean, photography was too expensive Mm -hmm. uh, for ordinary um, garden variety books. But with all the resources of the Time Life organization behind them... um, That's what they were known for anyway. Yep. With with photographers at hand... um, they pioneered the, the business of step-by-step photographic instruction. And there are so many barriers to explaining Chinese cooking in words. Uh, you can't... Even, even the Chao family had only uh, managed to get so far in conveying all the things that are so difficult to convey to foreigners uh, about Chinese cooking. But the photography in the Time Life uh, Foods of the World volume went a tremendous way to, um, well, to cutting through some Gordian knots to conveying complicated processes uh, without having to rely on cumbersome language. And without even you know, making doing the recipe yourself. I mean, it opened the world and opened our eyes to, you know, to these fabulous dishes laid out, you know, in, mm-hmm. in beautiful color in the book, and and I think that probably whetted a lot of people's appetite, Indeed. quite literally, for um, <laughs> you know to to try some of these some of these more authentic, if you will. I hate that word, authentic. You know, but somewhat, but authentic dishes or dishes of of actual um, classic. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chinese yeah. cuisine, yes. mm-hmm. and there from there it went right. From and there it said, went yeah, from restaurants and cookbooks, um, and and uh, I don't think I don't think we've stopped. Never, yeah. um, given Calvin Trillin's <laughs> <laughs> departure there in his poet. I don't know if it, there was, he had that poem in New Yorker. Was it last year or two years ago? It's, time flies, but um, yes, there's another province, so we'll have more. <laughs> more and different Chinese food. Uh, but it is. It's a wonderful world of Chinese food. Hey, there's a title for a new book. Right? <laughs> and, you know, there are no recipes in Ants. Are there? Did I know? No, there are no recipes in this book, which I found an actual treat <laughs> because <laughs> I didn't have to stop and then have to, you know, cook it and, and, and uh, digest that. Um, but the the information is, you make it so readable and so interesting. It is a history of food, but it's a history of a people, and and food is all about the people, right? 
Thank you so much for writing it. Thank you for sharing your time. And I encourage you to, if you're interested at all in Chinese food, it, you don't need a recipe. Just read this book and your mouth will be watering. It's Chow Chop Suey, Food and the Chinese American Journey by my guest, Ann Mendelson. Thank you so much. Thank you, Linda. <laughs> and thank you for listening. This has been A Taste of the Past, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.